Welcome to Jen Rubin's Green Room. This is Jen Rubin from the Washington Post. I'm glad you're back for another week. I hope you've enjoyed our chats. When a Washington or a national figure come into your living room, pour ourselves a glass of wine, sit on the couch and chat, and you get to listen in. Well, there is a lot going on in the world, to put it mildly. And sometimes I think when there is so much coming in that you get a headache listening to this. I do think, how do you think it feels to be in the White House when this is going on, when the deluge of news is really incomparable? And of course, there are all the issues in the White House we never hear about because problems are solved or national security prohibits them. So I think there's a lot of curiosity out there about what it's like to work in the White House, what the good parts are, what the bad parts are. And we are so lucky this week to have with us Ron Klain, who was President Biden's chief of staff when he was vice president, was the fellow who navigated us through Ebola, if you remember, during the Obama administration. And of course, he was President Biden's chief of staff for the first two years, helped put together a cabinet, helped marshal through important legislation. He has left the administration, but he's not gone very far. So we've tracked him down, and it's my absolute pleasure to have Ron with us uh, to chat. Ron, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So you're freed from the White House responsibilities. Now, I understand you're not contrary to popular belief, eating bonbons and watching daytime TV, but actually practicing law. Is that right? I am. I rejoined the old law firm where I was at uh, many years ago, O'Melveny and Myers, and um, back, uh, back making an honest living as a lawyer. Oh, my. So the change from being on call 24 hours a day and having the weight of the world on you to practicing law, did it take you a while to switch gears or to shift into another speed? I took about two months off after I left the White House before I started work and uh, dealt with some family matters. And uh, uh, But, you know, after a while, I was ready to do something and stay busy and do something I enjoyed. And so I decided it was time to stop sitting at home with the dogs and go back to work. I'm sure the dogs miss you. Um, when you left the White House, um, obviously you had worked for two years. Um, it is an exhausting job. Did you leave with sadness? Did you leave with a sense that you wish in a perfect world you could do more there? Or was it just kind of time to go for you? It was time to go. I really enjoyed the two years. It was a great honor to hold the position, great honor to serve, great honor to work with an amazing, diverse team at the White House and get the things done with what we did. Uh, we had done quite a lot in those two years. I was personally exhausted and needed a break. And uh, so it was the right decision for me and my family to leave when I did. And um, I put on a lot of weight and my health had gotten bad. And now I've lost a lot of weight. My health is better. So it was, a, it was a, for me, it was the right decision. So working in the White House is not good for one's waistline, I take it. Not for mine. Some people I know when they get stressed uh, tend not to eat. When I get stressed, I intend to eat more. So uh, so it was not good for my waistline, that's for sure. Bad combination of uh, not getting exercise because you're working all the time and uh, eating, stress eating. eating. Yeah. So you've been in the White House on this jaunt. You've had other turns in the White House. Do you lose that sense of wonder when you go in the gate every day or you're sitting in the Oval Office? Do, does it just become like any office or do you keep that sense of, 
how fortunate, how special, how completely absurd it is that a kid from Indianapolis would wind up in the White House. I will say, I never lost that sense of wonder. And I thought every time I walked into the Oval Office, I would do it every single day while I was chief of staff. Every time I walked in and thought, how did a, a Jewish kid from a public schools in Indianapolis, Indiana, wind up here at the Oval Office? It was kind of, it's a wonderful and amazing thing about our country. So when you're in the White House, obviously people like me and many others have all kinds of advice. They have all kinds of views. Yeah. How do you screen that out, ignore that, um, make sure that you're listening to people who are being constructive? What's the right balance between not becoming isolated and being completely driven crazy by everybody who has a second guess or a third guess about what you're doing? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of uh, swirl around. In fact, I, I was a frequent user of Twitter and read stuff on Twitter and people was like, oh, well, Twitter isn't the real world. Twitter is not the real world. And you shouldn't take everything that's on Twitter, either literally or seriously. But I found it a good way to get quick advice. Uh, and it's your job as chief of staff to process the good ideas from the bad ideas. So I was never shy about reading ideas, never shy about listening to the incoming. And then ultimately my call as to which things we would pursue. So um, I found listening to a lot of voices very helpful and often a source of good information, sometimes a source of bad information. But, um, but I, think, I think not getting too bunkered down and not too wet wrapped up in the belief that all the good ideas are inside the building is very, very important. And yeah. sometimes even criticisms are very important to hear. Um, you know, it's important to hear what people outside the White House are saying. It's important to take it seriously. It's important to uh, reflect on whether or not the critics are making good points. And often they were. And Sometimes they weren't. And, um, you know, we always had a clear sense of mission in the Biden White House. The president ran to build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out. And we never lost sight of that. But, um, you know, the tactics of how you do that, how you get things passed on the Hill, always open to good suggestions and good ideas. We had a lot of real good, smart people inside the White House and a lot of smart people outside the White House with ideas about how we could do it better. And I always tried to listen to that. When President Biden came into office, a lot of Democrats thought he was naive. They said, oh, he came from a different era in the Senate when people could do deals and there were normal Republicans around. He just doesn't get it. Um, All the Republicans are crazy. You can't deal with him. He's going to wind up giving away his agenda. Well, two years plus in, some of the things he did have to do unilaterally with just Democrats, but he got the PACT Act. He got the CHIPS Act, he got the infrastructure bill, uh, he got votes on judges and on his nominees. What did he get that perhaps people who are faithful to the Democratic Party or really concerned about Republicans don't perceive about his ability to get things done? Well, I think he understood that there's no harm in talking to Republicans and uh, didn't and engaging people in conversations didn't mean he had to give up his core principles. And, um, and he's kept at it. He's also quite persistent. Um, uh, there were times when others of us would get frustrated and say, we're never going to get anywhere. He just said, well, let's do another meeting. Let's keep at it. So I think his patience, his persistence, his belief in personal relationships, they all matter. I understand the president has his critics who say he's not uh, as witty in public as other presidents and not um, you know, as, as rhetorically adept. What he brings to it is wisdom, persistence, and a willingness to talk to people, try to get them over the finish line. And he spent months doing that in 2021 and 2022. The results was a series of legislative achievements I think really are unmatched in decades. And uh, some of those were Democrats only, but some of those were Democrats and Republicans working together. And, um, you know, he, he pressed very hard. 
And of course, he got the debt ceiling deal. If you looked at that with a critical eye, it's hard to imagine Democrats could have gotten anything better as soon as one house went to the Republicans. Did Kevin McCarthy understand he was getting fleeced? Did he understand and he didn't care? He just had to sell it to his troops? Um, Republicans really walked away with essentially nothing. Well, look, I will let Republicans comment on what they think they got out of the deal. Um, I wasn't at the White House when the debt ceiling deal was done, so I wasn't in the room talking to Speaker McCarthy about it. Uh, I think from their perspective, they they should take some uh, happiness out of the fact that they did get some limits on the pace of federal spending and uh, the direction of federal spending. That's what they said they wanted. Uh, The things that they gave up were things that had either nothing to do with federal spending that seemed like overreach on their part to try to, you know, deregulate the oil industry and whatnot, um, or uh, or things they, they themselves at various times put on and off the table. Uh, the president challenged them in the State of the Union. I was part of that in the State of the Union to keep their hands off Social Security and Medicare. And that night they all stood and applauded for that. And so the fact that they didn't get that, well, they stood and applauded for the fact that they didn't want that. So that was a red line for the president. They knew that. And... Um, you know, they appeared to back off that. Although I saw, I saw the speaker afterwards say that he was going to put together some kind of committee to try to come up with plans to cut Social Security and Medicare. So we'll see if they're off it for now or off it for good. Doesn't seem like they're off it for good at all. Yes, and they're back coming up with tax cut plans, which would seem yeah. not to be in the spirit of the yeah. deficit cutting, we're financially responsible Republican line we've been hearing. Look, we have a, I know it may not be as, politically popular to say as some of the Republican lines, but the truth is we have a big deficit, part because we because of the Trump tax cuts. And those tax cuts let a lot of rich people and a lot of big corporations pay very little in taxes. And if you really care about the deficit, you should be just as concerned about that as you are about, as Republicans were trying to whack food stamps and other social programs. There's a lot more revenue to be made up, a lot more closing of the deficit to be done by making, making the tax system more fair. And when you're talking to Republicans in private, um, whether you're with the president or without the president, are they saner in private? Um, do you do they leave the rhetoric and the craziness, or are they just as whacked when they're talking to you, you know, in your office or on the phone one on one? I always had very respectful and uh, positive conversations when I talked to Republicans on the Hill. Um, I think they are they are. Very, 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 very committed to the idea of not raising taxes. And uh, you can call it, you can put whatever kind of label you want to put on that, but I don't think that's a realistic perspective to fiscal discipline. Um, when you have the hole that the Trump tax cuts left in our fiscal posture, um, and um, just mathematic, it would be cruel to try to close the gap by cutting people, and it would be mathematically impossible. So, um, you know, I think. I don't know if they know that or not, but they, 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 to them, the idea of not raising taxes on anyone is kind of a, a core belief and one they are consistent on in private and in public. And on other issues, whether it's Trump getting indicted multiple times, whether it's on these Biden, you know, ridiculous hearings that keep turning up exactly nothing, are they sincere or do they know they're putting on a show? Are they just performing for Fox News? Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, speculate on their motives as to why they do it. Um, uh, we know that they themselves found after months of digging around that they had dug up nothing about the way the president does business as president and uh, uh, put a lot of time into trying to stir up some of these controversies and found nothing there. 
Uh, the president's incredibly ethical, incredibly devoted to his job. And um, uh, so uh, I'll let them comment on why they're, why they're doing the things they're doing. Fair enough. If you had to pick the best day you had in the White House and the worst day you had, does anything stand out for you? Yeah, the worst day was definitely the day in late August of 2021 when we lost 13 service members at Abbey Gate in Kabul. Uh, it's far and away the worst day we had. It was a tragedy. Um, and, um, um, you know, we were nearing the end of the evacuation from Kabul, and all of our service people were supposed to be inside the security walls at the airport. And um, in fact, we had a bunch of people outside the walls trying to help the British finish their uh, withdrawal from that part of the airport. Um, led to a horrible tragedy that day. That was definitely the worst day we had. Best day, I think, was a day in August of 2022 when it was clear that we were going to be able to uh, finish the PACT Act, finish the CHIPS Act, and get the Inflation Reduction Act agreement between Senator Schumer and Senator Manchin. And that was uh, a very, very happy day. We'd worked on that for a very long time. There were a lot of times people doubted we could get it done. A lot of people called us incompetent for our ability to get it done. We got it done. That was uh, a very, very good day. And frankly, at least from my perspective, sort of uh, centrist in view, it was actually a better bill in a lot of ways than Build Back Better. It was more fiscally responsible. So having gone through that, you got a pretty good product at the end. I thought it was a good product. I felt very bad that we didn't get anything on child care and elder care. Mm -hmm. These are big needs in our country. Um, and uh, I, I understand they're, they cost money and they add to the spending the federal government, but I think if we want to get more people back in the workforce and continue to see labor force participation grow, we have to help families. They're struggling to take care of their children and take care of their parents. Um, and I think, uh, I think in the long run, that's a fiscally positive thing because you get more people to work that way. When Ketanji Brown Jackson was confirmed, um, that was kind of one of those moments where you say, oh, I was here for, or I was yeah. there when. Uh, what did that feel like? The president had made this promise and he'd gotten criticized for making a progress. She came through the hearings. She was so impressive. The Republicans were so desperate and sleazy. And here she was. She was confirmed. Describe what that moment was like for you, for the president. That would be another one of those top days. You asked me for one best day. If you'd asked me for three best days, it would have been one Fair of my enough. three best days. No question. Um I got to know Justice Jackson when we both served on a board together at Harvard Law School. And um, uh, I was always a fan of hers. Uh, I, first of all, had been a big supporter and urged the president to make the commitment in South Carolina to put, put the first black woman on the Supreme Court. I thought it was something that was long overdue and something he should do whether he made the commitment. If he was going to do it, he might as well tell people that was what he was going to do. And so I was glad he made that commitment back in, in the during the primaries. And then we were very mindful from the time we came to the White House. The very first judicial nomination President Biden sent to Capitol Hill was to nominate Judge Jackson from the district court to go up to the Court of Appeals. And we did that with the thought in mind that maybe there'd be a vacancy on the Supreme Court and maybe she would be the pick. So we wanted to get her further credentialed and further prepared for that opportunity if it came. So this is a, a promise that we made, the president made very thoughtfully and seriously. And then we took steps to be ready uh, to move ahead when the vacancy came. And um, uh, I thought she was a great nominee. I thought her performance before the Judiciary Committee was quite impressive. Not surprising, but impressive. And I already see the impact she's having on the court. The great irony, or perhaps it's just a 
comment on how long you've been able to endure Washington. You were there as a staffer for the Clarence Thomas hearings, and then you were there in the White House with your own nominee. When you were going through the Clarence Thomas hearings, did you have a sense, um, you knew he was going to be, quote, bad from the point of view of um, progressive values, progressive interests. Did you imagine that he was going to be so ideological? Did you have any hint that his financial sense of right and wrong was off? Did you ever imagine we get to this point? Well, I had urged Senator Biden to vote against the Thomas nomination shortly after it was made. And, um, you know, that didn't require an analysis of how strong the no needed to be. No was no. <laughs> and um, uh, and so uh, so I, I did not think he should be confirmed to the Supreme Court. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it um, I think that turned out to have been a historic mistake that the Senate let Justice Thomas get confirmed by a very narrow. It's the closest confirmation fight uh, in history in terms of the number of no votes. Right. You. When we back when, um, after law school, you actually clerked at the Supreme Court for a relatively conservative justice, um, but someone who was very highly regarded, Byron White. Describe what your feelings are now looking at this Supreme Court, whether it's the ethical issues, whether it's disregard of precedent. Compare the two courts that the one that you served on, frankly, although you were a clerk for one justice, yeah. and the one now. When I clerked at the Supreme Court, uh, William Rehnquist was the chief justice, and it was a conservative court by historic standards, but it was, a, it was still a court where um, you know, there was some fidelity to the Constitution and where people took their responsibilities very seriously. And, um, uh, and at the time, I thought, boy, this is a really conservative Supreme Court, and the Rehnquist court seems pretty moderate compared to today's, uh, today's Supreme Court. Um, so, uh, so I find the fact that the court has become so politicized, uh, a sad thing. The fact that we have justices who seem very results oriented is a very sad thing. And I think there's no question that it's, it's hurt the court's standing in the public. Polls show that. I think our common sense shows that. And, um, you know, it's, um, Hope the president, I hope President Biden gets a chance to put some more people on the Supreme Court of the caliber and excellence that Justice Jackson reflects. Are you enamored of any of the reform ideas, either the relatively small ones, like having a mandatory ethics code, or some of the more substantial ones, um, increasing the size of the court, putting term limits? What, what do you think about all those ideas? I definitely think the court should have an ethics code. I think that's sensible. Other, uh, the other institutions in government do. Um, and um, I think uh, the court should have one too. Um, as for the rest, it all seems so improbable to me that I haven't really spent a lot of time worrying about it. Because it would need to get by a filibuster in the Senate and have support. For yeah, and, the- and term limits on the court would require a constitutional amendment. I wouldn't favor that. I think that, um, you know, I, I don't think we need to change the Constitution around the Supreme Court. Fair enough. When you're in office, are there more barriers to getting things done than people imagine. I have this feeling that the American people look out there and they say, well, there must be an inflation button that, you know, the president can just, you know, push. How do you balance the sense of wanting to have a president who exercises authority 
with the reality that there are many, many things he just doesn't control. I mean, he can make a contribution one way or the other. He can tilt the scales, but he didn't control inflation. He's not there setting gas prices every day. Yeah, Jen, I think there's two aspects to that. One is the fact there are some things he can't control. And the other things are that there are barriers to action that go with being a rule of law president, uh, appropriate barriers to action. So, for example, I remember in 2021, the president announced he was going to ask the Justice Department to make a rule to ban ghost guns. Um, and then it took a year to get it done. So why did it take a year to get it done? So that he didn't care, he didn't, didn't push him? No, it's because one of our rules is that when an agency makes a rule, people are allowed to comment on the rule. The agency has to respond to the comments before the rule is final. And because of the NRA and other public activity, there were 40,000 comments filed on the ghost gun rule. And the Justice Department had to go through those 40,000 comments so the rule would be appropriate and lawful. And that took time. People at the Justice Department were doing other things besides reading comments on the ghost gun rule. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, some of these things are frustrating and time consuming. And it just seemed like we wanted to ban ghost guns. Let's get it done. But, um, but all these things, all these procedures and processes you have to go through, it's part of our system. And, um, you know, it's an appropriate part of our system. Uh, so that, that's just something you have to deal with. And that doesn't even get to your point about, you know, the price of eggs shot up because there's avian flu. Well, the president can't wave a wand to make avian flu go away. If he could wave a wand and bring down the price of eggs, he would. But um, uh, we had the same problem uh, while I was there with the baby formula mess when one of the factories that makes baby formula had a, had a breakdown and we had a lack of supply of baby formula. And people would just say, well, just get some more formula. And it's easier said than done. And uh, we even did extraordinary things. We lowered tariffs and flew in formula from overseas. We got the formula from overseas on the shelves and people, parents show up and they say, my baby likes this kind of formula and this kind of makeup. And here's this new formula from Australia. I don't know if my kid's gonna like it or not. There, you know, there's, there isn't the baby formula that I want for my child, understandably. I had babies, they were very picky too, a long time ago. And so I get the fact that I wouldn't wanna show up at the store and pick some Australian formula I'd never seen before. And so we did a lot of extraordinary things to try to solve that baby formula crisis. It's not that we weren't on top of it, we were, but, um, but just the president doesn't run the baby formula factories in America and he couldn't tell Abbott Labs how to repair the factory and, and how to keep it functioning appropriately. You and I, I will be frank with the audience, have discussed from time to time this gap between what the public says they think of the president or the polls, if you believe those, and what he's actually accomplished. It seems so far out of whack. What do you think explains that? I think, look, I think high prices um, are a drag on people's sense of well-being and livelihood. Understandably, people feel pinched economically. And the fact that we passed a bunch of legislation that in the long run will make the economy stronger and better is a good thing. I think people are generally approving of the fact that the president started a manufacturing boom in our country. We start to make things again, make solar panels, make electric vehicles. But if that's not your job or your career, it doesn't really affect you personally, doesn't affect you immediately. Um, and so maybe you think it's a generally good thing that we're gonna build electric cars, but if you're not an electric car builder, how does that really help me? And so I think that um, the things the president's gotten done are good for the country, they're good for our economy in the long run. I think people will see the benefits of them. We also were at a time when in, these, in our market economies, people are generally pretty grumpy. The president has the second highest approval rating of any G7 leader in his own country. So it's not just he that's facing tough reviews from the voters uh, on their day-to-day -day economic lives. It's the same thing in France and England and Germany and the rest in Japan. 
And so um, I think um, I think he just has to keep at it. I think in the end, elections are a choice. They're not a referendum. And uh, I think that his accomplishments and his record, his agenda will stand up very well against whomever the Republicans nominate in 2024. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, because you've gone through White House transitions. You've left the White House. You've come to the White House. Have you ever imagined that a president would walk out the door with boxes and boxes of documents, whether they were classified or not, they're government documents? And secondly, that had war plans, that had nuclear secrets in them. I mean, was that just stunning to you? was stunning to me. Uh, and the more we've learned about it, the more stunning it gets. But uh, beyond that, I'm not going to comment on the former president's legal trails. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, when you're in the White House, um, you have to deal with people like me in the press. Um, some are pesky. Um, if you really want to aggravate yourself, you can tune into the White House press corps every day and watch them ask questions. My sense was that you guys cared less about the day-to-day news cycle than a lot of presidents, that you kind of had faith, um, maybe it was misplaced, maybe it wasn't, that if you did good stuff, you'd be rewarded. Um, Is that an accurate take on the president, that he was less concerned with kind of day-to-day press coverage? I think the president was less concerned with day-to-day press coverage. He has a long-run perspective. He's been in this a long time. He's been up. He's been down politically. He understands if you just keep doing the right things, that's what you can do. I don't know about faith that we'd be rewarded politically. I think we had faith that we had the right strategies to get the things done the president ran on. We had a very simple formula in the White House, which is the president ran saying he was going to do A, B, C, and D, and our job was to go get A, B, C, and D done. And, um, um, you know, some people said that was too liberal or too this or too that. But, you know, that, that's what we said on the campaign trail. The voters voted. 81 million people voted for him. That's what we should be delivering. So we were focused on delivering our agenda, not so much the day-to-day theater criticism of our performance or the day-to-day reviews of our performance. The president presided over a time where a lot of Americans were dying because of COVID. And, yeah. of course, we've had this just incessant drumbeat of one mass shooting after another. It's very hard to continue to grieve and process each one of these. And yet the president seems to have um, an abundance of empathy, perhaps because of his own life. When one of these crises happened, how did it go? Would you wake him up in the middle of the night? Would you wait until the morning? How did you break the news? And how would he react as you're telling him what's going on? Uh, I would often have to wake him up in the middle of the night and tell him about mass shootings um, or other tragedies. You're right, the president's a man of enormous compassion. I think that's I think that's who he is as a person, but I also think the tragedies he's been through in his own personal life color that. He would often console victims, uh, family members of victims of these tragedies by talking about his own loss, and many times people found that helpful. Um, you know, he would often say there will come a time when a person who's lost will bring a smile to your face before it brings a tear to your eye. That was from his own personal experience about the losses he suffered in his life. I think going through tough times found that very reassuring and very consoling. I think what is not reassuring or consoling is that after seeing all this carnage, we still have been unable to pass a ban on assault weapons. And my successors now still have to get up in the middle of the night and brief the president and tell him that these shootings continue. And, um, uh, you know, I I think the president brings great comfort and leadership to each of these incidents. 
but I know he's as frustrated as anyone is about the fact that, well, we did get some gun control legislation passed after Uvalde in Buffalo. We've been unable to get the kind of things passed that we were able to do when I worked for him on his Senate staff back in the 1990s. One of the president's other strengths um, from his Senate days, from his uh, days as vice president, was his connection with international leaders. Um, yeah. I think um, the degree to which he solidified NATO and frankly expanded it surprised a lot of people because NATO, uh, the NATO alliance was frankly um, pretty weakened um, under the last president. Um, when he's in the room with other leaders, is there a different vibe than with other presidents? Are they more familiar with each other? Does it, Can Biden be more relaxed? How, do, how does that interchange kind of work when he's sitting down with um, allied leaders? What I've seen with, with, with Western leaders, uh, what I see is a great deal of respect for his experience and his wisdom and a great deal of respect for his, how much he's seen through the years. And I think uh, I think our NATO allies really appreciate that. They appreciate a president who has a historic perspective about the importance of NATO, about the importance of our, our relationships with our NATO partners, and who uh, has been through a lot, uh, been through the Cold War, uh, understands what could happen in Europe. And, um, and I think that's what he brought to the Ukraine crisis was in the run-up to it, being very clear to Europe that unless the U.S. and the West took strong actions after Russia invaded, and got Ukraine weapons and put on unmatched economic sanctions on Russia. That uh, you know the risk of even more um, the the risk of even more devastation in Europe was high, and um, uh, so I think the president brought a historic perspective to it. He's very good with people. He's very effective in talking to these Western leaders, and very effective in persuading them of his point of view. And I'll say in the run up to the Ukraine war, I saw the, all the benefits of that. First, in January, they were like. The Russians will never invade. Joe, your point of view is out of date. You have a you have a Cold Warrior view on this. They're not going to do it. It's a different Russia now. It was like it's not a different Russia. You know, I know Putin. I've seen this. I see. I see how this works. He's going to do it. All the signs are he's going to do it. We need to be ready to go with devastating sanctions and a willingness to really arm and support the Ukrainians. And I think he was right about that. I think the Western leaders know he was right about that. I think it's added to his leadership inside the alliance. Interesting. Ron, one of the, I think, most under, misunderstood people in politics um, may be Vice President Harris. Vice President, as you know, because you worked for one for eight years, is a really hard job. Do um, You work for two. Excuse me. You work for two. Um, but it's a really hard job. And she is the first African-American, first Asian-American, first woman. What is she like in person? What do the American people not know about her? that you've seen up close? Uh, I really enjoyed getting to know Vice President Harris well. Her office was next to mine in the West Wing and I'd see her almost every day that she was in the building. Uh, I think that people don't appreciate how well informed she is, how diligent she is about her job. She prepares very rigorously. She comes into meetings well prepared and determined to advance the president's agenda and her agenda. I think, as you say, being vice president is a tough job. This is a country that really hates number two. We love number one. We don't like number two. That's our American ethos. I lived with that with Vice President Gore when people made fun of him and said he was stiff and could never get elected to anything and became the Democratic nominee in a, in a rout and uh, won more popular votes than his rival in 2000. Uh, uh, vice President Biden took a lot of grief when he was vice president. And uh, I think so. I think part of what Vice President Harris goes through is what, what all vice presidents have gone through. I remember when George... 
H.W. Bush was vice president for President Reagan in one of the major national news magazines, part of the cover, Bush the Wimp. And this is a person who had joined World War II as a teenager. Uh, so, um, so, you know, I think vice presidents take abuse in our country. It's always been the case. As you said, in addition to the usual aspects of that, she faces uh, sexism, racism, as the first female vice president, first vice president of color. And I think she handles it with grace and determination. She knows a lot of people are watching her. She wants to be a role model, particularly for young girls uh, and particularly for young girls of color, uh, but for all young girls and for all Americans. And, you know, she, she takes this very seriously and she's doing a very good job as vice president. Does she have a close relationship with the president? Does he listen to her carefully? Is this um, something, can you feel kind of a personal warmth, of, a level of trust yeah. when you see them interact together? I think he, the president really likes Vice President Harris. They have a very good relationship. The two families have a good relationship. And, uh, and he does take her advice, listen to her advice very carefully. Uh, she's in the room on all the major decisions and he weighs her advice with others' advice and he weighs her advice very seriously because she gives good advice. It's well-prepared advice, it's thoughtful advice wise advice. And, um, you know, she, um, I think she's a very, very valuable member of his team. I'll close on a subject that's um, near and dear to me. I know it is to you, which is the rise of anti-Semitism in America. I never thought I would see the level of anti-Semitism online, uh, in person, in violence, in hate crimes. The Second gentleman has kind of taken this up as an issue, and the White House is now kind of advancing an agenda. Tell me a little bit about, first of all, your own impression um, as a Jewish American, whether the shocks you, surprises you, and secondly, whether you think that they're going to make any headway, or is this an issue that's bigger than one White House? Well, it does shock me that we're still talking so much about anti-Semitism in this day and age, shocking that we're seeing so much of it in America doesn't shock me that it exists, as always has. I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. I definitely saw anti-Semitism when I was growing up. I'd hope we'd progressed since then. We have in many respects, but we still have a lot of anti-Semitism in this country. Um, it's great that Doug Imhoff has taken this on as the first Jewish person to be one of the four major principals at the White House. Um, he, I know this is something he's always been worried about, and he brings a lot to the effort. He's a very accomplished and skilled lawyer. Um, very wise person. And um, I think his leadership on this is is very impressive and very important. And it's something he feels very personally for himself, his family, and Jews all over the country. And I think we're very lucky to have Doug where we have him at this critical time. Absolutely. I think the trip that he made to Europe when he went to Auschwitz, when he went to the yeah. town where his family came from, was very emotional, very powerful for really all Americans to see that, that kind of that kind of image. Well, Ron, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you so much for meeting with us, taking time out of your day. And uh, I, for one, hope uh, you haven't left politics permanently. Well, we'll see. Thank you, Jen. I appreciate your kind words there. And I'm glad for the opportunity to talk to you and and your audience. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was Ron Klain. He did not disappoint, did he? Ron is an unusual guy in so many ways because he is honest. He is down to earth. He doesn't take himself too seriously. 
He is not a pompous jerk like a lot of people in this town. He is really a great guy. And I think when we look back upon this period of time, I think President Biden, although he doesn't get a lot of credit now, I think he'll get credit in the long run. And you have to credit people who were in the White House as well. And the people who were there were there because Ron hired them. And the cabinet was there because Ron assisted the president in putting together a all-star cabinet. So I think history will be kind to all of them. I'm not convinced that Ron has left politics for good. I think he's uh, too much of a political aficionado to want to give up on politics. So uh, perhaps he hasn't had his last act. It was wonderful to be with you again. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and they can follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.